I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon. Hello and welcome back to the Chronicles of Aguna for the latest edition of our press review show, which happens to be coming to you guys live on North London Derby Day. I wasn't going to do a pod during the day today. Um, I, I thought it would be better to kind of spend the day mentally preparing myself for what's to come this evening at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. But I've got to be honest, I'm so nervous. I'm pacing up and down. I'm trying to keep myself busy to um, to take my mind off it as much as possible, though it's not proving very successful. So I figured why not jump on, do a little bit of a stream. We can talk about some of this stuff doing the rounds in the press with regards to the Arsenal at the moment. But we can also uh, sort of help each other through the build-up of what is going to be a huge, huge game. Now, naturally, I think a lot of us are feeling nervous. I think a lot of us understand what tonight could be um, and how big tonight could be for the progression of this football club, for the process, if you want to call it that. Um, so let, let's start off with that. We'll come to the press stuff in a little bit, but we've got to start on tonight's game because it's consuming me. It is taking me over. It is making me nervous, anxious. It's made me actually do some tasks uh, that I've been putting off for like three, four months because I just want to keep busy. Um, and I just want to, um, you know, take my mind off and focus off of it as much as possible. Look, when you think about tonight's game, it's important to put it into context, OK, because this game should be seen by Arsenal fans as an opportunity as opposed to a must win. That's how you got to look at this. This is what I've tried to kind of drum into my own mind to make me feel a little bit better and a little bit more comfortable about what we're facing tonight. Arsenal win tonight. We secure Champions League qualification at the expense of Spurs on Spurs' own patch. What bigger motivation could you have than that as a group of players to go out and perform to your absolute maximum and hopefully take maximum points? If we draw... I think that would be a fantastic result as well because we maintain that four-point lead over our closest rivals going into the last two games of the season, which would mean one victory would be enough, whether that comes at Newcastle or against Everton, to see us pip them to fourth place. If we lose the game, which is obviously the worst-case scenario, we're still not in the worst position. We're still not in a bad position. We're still in a better position than Tottenham going into the final two games of the season. Now, I am worried about the trip to Newcastle. That is a game I look at and think, oh my God, like it's, it's not ideal. Newcastle, since they've sort of resurged under Eddie Howe, uh, this team now that seem to play a lot more free-flowing, a lot more, you know, they're a lot more dangerous. They're a lot more uh, exciting. The St. James's Park crowd has responded to that and there's a much better atmosphere at the place now than there was under... Uh, Mike Ashley uh, and prior to Eddie Howe coming in. So that's not an ideal fixture, but it's not a game that you can't win. It's not a game that you look at and you go, oh my God, like it's not a Liverpool away. And equally, I don't want to be sort of disrespectful to Everton who come to the Emirates Stadium on the last weekend of the season, but we should be turning them over. You know, yes, they've they've been a little bit resurgent of late and they've picked up a couple of big results. I actually think that they'll probably be safe by the time we play that game, which works in our favour. But it's still a one-off game in the Premier League. You never know what can happen. So even if the worst possible case were to occur this evening, Arsenal would still be in pole position to finish in the top four. That is how you've got to look at tonight's fixture. That is how you calm the nerves. You go out there, you perform, you get all three points. Happy bloody days. It's a moment that will go down in our memories for a while. Clinching the Champions League qualification place on their own patch in front of their fans, it would be great. A draw would be a very, very good result as well. So there's only one of the three possible outcomes that would have any negative connotations for Arsenal. And even if that was to occur, that negative connotation is not one that is fatal. So that's how you got to look at it. That's, that, that's how you got to look at it tonight. That's how you calm the nerves. That's how you try and sort of manage those anxieties going into this game. So, um, yeah, that's where I'm at. Um, I am heading down to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium tonight. I'm very much looking forward to to getting down there and meeting up with the rest of the Arsenal fans. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm looking forward to the match because 
you know, I've, uh, I always feel nervous even more so inside the ground than I do when I'm watching on television. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, I don't really know what else to say about it. I mean, I am super superstitious. I've been thinking about this over the last few days and I've been looking back at the, the games that I've recently been to on the road. So the last three away games I've been to were Watford away, were Chelsea away, West Ham away. And now we've got this one. And, um, and, and one thing that was a constant was during the game at Chelsea, and, and this was pure coincidence, and during the games at West Ham, I wore the same jeans and the same jacket. So I have ensured that my missus has prepared a pair of jeans that were not clean, that were not in my wardrobe ready for me to wear, that were in amongst the stuff that needs to be washed. I've made sure that she specifically prepared these jeans so that I can wear them alongside the jacket that I wore at West Ham and at Chelsea in order to ensure that I don't upset the balance of things uh, when it comes to, to the universe tonight and how this game might go. So, yeah, I'm, you know, I am nervous. I am superstitious. I am worried about it. I can't help that. But I have to keep telling myself that for Spurs, this is this is much more nervy. Now, yes, they've got the home advantage, but does that does that override the nervousness that they'll be feeling going into this game? It's a must win for them. And as I say, for us, it's more of a must not lose than a must win. And even if we do lose, it still doesn't mean that our season's over and it still doesn't mean that our chances of top four evaporate into the sky. So, yeah, that's where I'm at. Look, we'll come on to uh, talk about some of the bits and pieces that have been doing the rounds in the press over the last sort of 24 hours or so. And then we will revert back to some North London derby chat. We'll get your thoughts. We'll get your comments as well. Um, let, let's kick off with the Gabriel Jesus stuff. Now, we briefly touched on it with Mike Stavrou during our North London derby preview yesterday. Gabriel Jesus's agent has been speaking uh, about the fact that his clients, uh, representatives at least, have spoken to Arsenal already and that Arsenal is a possibility for Gabriel Jesus. Now, we've talked at length in recent weeks about how we think he would be a good fit, why he would be a good fit. Um, you know, I, I felt when I heard that this rumour and I first heard this story come to the fore, quite confident about it because of a number of factors. The relationship that he already has with Mikel Arteta, the relationship that Mikel Arteta has with Pep Guardiola and Manchester City in general, the fact that this is a club that looks to be on the rise, is moving in the right direction. Um, you know, it feels like we've done a really, really good job, particularly if we get in the Champions League, of showing everybody else that although we're not there yet and there's still a long way to go, that we are on an upward trajectory. And I think that's so, so important when trying to persuade a player like Gabriel Jesus, who's probably not quite good enough to lead the line for Manchester City week in, week out, but more than good enough for a side who are looking to consolidate themselves in the top four and do essentially what we're looking to do. And hopefully Gabriel Jesus can develop, progress, push on uh, during his time at Arsenal. That would be great. Um, but what I mean by that is not that he's a bad player or not that he's somebody that I'd be very happy to have, but he's not an Erling Haaland. He's not a, um, you know, a Robert Lewandowski. He's not quite at that level of centre-forward, but also he's got this... Um, He's got this brilliant sort of uh, ability to play from the right, to play from the left, etc., etc. So there's lots and lots um, to be optimistic about with Gabriel Jesus. But as I said to Mike yesterday on the show, the biggest thing to come away from these recent comments that his representative is making is for me that we are viewed by the outside world as a club that are moving in the right direction. And it's not just us that feel that way. It's not just us living within our own bubble and just us that look at what we're seeing and think, yeah, this is great. We feel that connection again. We must be... Um, the wider world is seeing this. The wider football population is looking at the work that Mikel Arteta has done and are enjoying it and think that we are maybe not enjoying it, but they're looking at it and thinking that Arsenal are, are on the rise again. There's a really, really great piece as well from Guillaume Balaguer on Mikel Arteta, which I really wanted to spend some time uh, sort of dissecting on this episode. We'll do that in a second. I just want to address some of the comments uh, in the chat box. Steve says, ha ha Harry, what are us football fans like? Uh, referring to my lucky jeans and lucky jacket uh, story, I can, uh, I, I believe. Uh, Sooty FM says, 
It's also the first North London derby at White Hart Lane with 60-plus fans in the stadium. I have to say, um, I am nervous about the atmosphere. I've been to White Hart Lane as an away fan a few times, and the atmosphere, particularly for North London derbies, is very, very good. Like you, you can't, you can say anything you want about them, but you can't take that away from them. They do have that ability to create an atmosphere, and in that stadium, which I think is better designed than ours, in the sense of the way they've done it. I, you know, I really like the the one sort of bank or one tier stand behind that goal. I think that that creates a, a cracking atmosphere. So I do expect it to be a cauldron tonight, and I do expect it to intimidate some of our young players but hopefully Mikel Arteta can instill a fearlessness in them hopefully he can help them through sort of blocking that out now you know we talk a lot about players not necessarily or managers not necessarily needing to have been big players in their playing careers to be successful managers and I and I I do genuinely believe that but it does help when you've got a manager who's been in those raucous atmospheres before who's experienced it and who came through it successfully because You'd hope that he'd be able to pass on some words of wisdom and advice and be able to help some of those young kids, um, you know, cope with that. Um, what else have we got in the chat? Uh, Nikomo says, make sure you have the lucky pants on too, Harry. I'm still wearing the same ones from West Ham. Wait, no, I'm joking. Um, he says, I'm watching between my fingers. It's also worked all season. Yeah, that's not a bad shout either. I'll probably be looking at the heavens most of the game tonight. I've got to be honest. Paul James says, please tell me I'm not mad. Were you at Liverpool Street at about 7pm yesterday? Been watching so much of your content. I don't know if I imagined seeing you. I was. You should have come and said hello. Um, I was. I was at Liverpool Street Station um, just before 7. I think I got the 6.55 train or something uh, back home. I just finished up at TalkSport and I was heading home. Yeah, so um, you, you probably did see me. You should have come and said hello. Uh, Clock and Seb says, have you seen the COVID cheats flags those tits have prepared? Oh, my. I mean, how petty can you get? And even, you know, it's it's being sort of put to Antonio Conte and put into the sort of media to try and kind of add a spice to this game. There doesn't need to be any more spice added to this game. You don't need to pour any more fuel on the fire. It's a North London derby uh, with a huge meaning. Um, you know, it's... It's just pathetic, isn't it? I mean, we're going to be turning up with banners like, you know, champions, uh, double winners, you know, White Hart Lane 71, White Hart Lane 2004. And these lot are going to call us COVID cheats. Oh, I'm so offended. Like, ridiculous. And the, the other thing as well that I, I find ridiculous is that um, Spurs had a number of games called off earlier in the season because of COVID. And then we saw, as the COVID situation developed, that the Premier League were very much taking an approach that that took into consideration not just COVID, but injuries. In fact, I read there were something like 12 or 13 games of the ones that were postponed that were actually postponed due to COVID and injuries, not just COVID. We were the last team to get a game postponed in the Premier League. Yet, when we did it, Everybody was up in arms and crazy about it. We didn't pick the game to be put where it is now. We didn't slot the game in today. The TV companies did that because they want to make as much money as they possibly can. They want to build this as the Champions League showdown. And they've got their wish because it is a huge, huge game. But it's not Arsenal that put it there. And Arsenal only did what a number of, in fact, all 19 of the rest of the Premier League clubs had done before them. So I think they need to get a bit of a grip on that. And uh, but it's typical Tottenham. You haven't got much else to to hang on to. There's certainly no success to hold on to, um, and so they'll they'll look for something like that. Uh, Wondering Minstrel says, "I've got a crazy toothache. I've taken a crazy amount of codeine and ibuprofen. Going to sleep. All alarm set. Ready for the kickoff. Enjoy the game live tonight, Harry. I had a ticket, but gave it to my cousin. Wishing you better, man. And um, hopefully you're feeling uh, more like yourself a little bit later on because we're going to need people." Uh, sort of uh, putting that energy across, whether it's in the stadium or on the t watching it on the TV. Uh, so wish you all the best, man, and uh, we'll speak soon, I'm sure. Uh, Jay Sayers says um, today's North London derby is like a final, so Harry Kane should flop. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold back on on poking fun at stuff like that just from fear of jinxing it. But um, I hope you're right. What else have we got? Uh, I've just skipped through the chat by accident. Shocking. Um, oh, here we go. 
uh, uh, King Arthur says, this Spurs lot acting confident in social media. They need a slapping. Uh, Junior Gunner says, why is everyone still calling it White Hart Lane? I'm confused. I mean, what else are you going to call it? The Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. It just sounds a bit, I don't know. It's just it's just habit, isn't it? Over the years, you say, I'm going down to the lane, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, Amira says, I'll be staying up to watch the match at 2.45 a.m. later. Hope it's worth it. Also, my mum's birthday tomorrow. So for her sake, I hope we win or it's going to be a bad day for everyone. <laughs> Uh, happy birthday to your mom and let us know where you're watching from my friend um 2 45 a.m that is dedication in my old age i'm not sure i can do hours like that anymore uh what else have we got um ftl guna says uh, my girlfriend wants me to take a xanax before the game but i don't think it'll be enough yeah it probably won't be enough uh we're gonna need something stronger i think mate um what else have we got? Um, Diagene says, we did cheat with COVID that day because we had players at AFCON. Injuries and suspensions at the time. They would have played against Lekonga and Patino in midfield. I don't mind saying this. Nobody's denying that we used the rules to our benefit. Nobody's denying that we took advantage of a precedent that had already been set to gain some sort of advantage. I completely agree with you. I just think that, you know, it's it's like, you know, it's like, a bus pulls up, right? And 12 people get on it for free. You can't stop the 13th one and blame them. Like you, they're not the only ones responsible. Do you see what I mean? You've got to look at the bigger picture. And I think the Premier League messed up in the way they dealt with that situation from the outset. But look, we were also on the end of um, of uh, of the, the other side of this. When Liverpool, with their fake COVID cases, decided that they wanted to get a game postponed to, to a time that suited them better. Um, you know, that that was the other side of it, the flip side of it. And we we didn't benefit from that, did we? So um, we complained about them. Tottenham are going to complain about us. It's all a vicious cycle, but it all comes from the Premier League not dealing with the situation properly in the first place. Dennis Brown says, uh, we are winning today, Harry. I hope you're right. Um, <laughs> Clock and Seb says, I like the way you've sneaked a Shrewsbury Town scarf into your collection. Now, do you know what it was? So I've got a drawer in my man cave that is just full of old football scarves. Like I've got all different ones from like different countries I've been to and, and different stadiums and whatever. And um, and yesterday when I was doing Sky Sports News, I logged on and, you know, normally I use the green screen and I normally sort of put the back, I change the background depending on what show we're doing. I logged on to Sky and I thought this just looks so Timpot. It just looks terrible because on, on StreamYard, which is the software I use, it's not too bad. You can get away with it. Like, it doesn't look awful. It doesn't look great, but it doesn't look awful. But the software that Sky were using was just, it was making it look terrible. And I was like, shit, quickly, got to get some stuff to hang over the green screen. Um, and I've just left it there, which is why. Um, my Arsenal away, not uh, Shrewsbury Town scarf. Um, it is on display. Um, Craig Tanner says, I'm watching the game with my best mate who's a Spurs fan. Not sure I should have arranged it. I don't know how you could have a best mate that's a Spurs fan, first of all. Uh, <laughs> uh, big hello to uh, James Russell, who joins us from Jamaica. Um, I'll do a couple of shout-outs, and then we'll continue through the topics that I want to discuss, and then we'll come back to the comments uh, towards the end. Big hello to Olu Segun, who joins us uh, from uh, Lagos. Uh, Matt Tomo says it's a 2.45 p.m. kickoff here in New York. That's better, isn't it, as long as you haven't got to uh, work or you're not stuck somewhere. Um, but yeah, good stuff. So look, the other piece I wanted to focus on, we talked about Gabriel Jesus's agent and his comments just briefly because we did, as I say, bring that up on the show yesterday. Um, but I did want to go into this piece written by Guillaume Balaguer, which I think is superb. Now, if you haven't read it already, I've tweeted it out. So head over to my Twitter feed at Harry Simiou, um, and you will find it there um, because uh, Guillaume Balaguer has written an excellent piece about Mikel Arteta, sort of with some real insight into the man. Um, I think a lot of the stuff is stuff that we probably assumed was the case, um, but it really goes into a level of detail that I, I enjoyed about Mikel Arteta and what he's done and what he's looked to implement since joining the football club. So I don't want to go through it all word for word, right? It is on the BBC Sport website. I want you guys to go over and have a read. But there's a few bits and pieces in here that I think are really, really um, interesting. So he talks about the fact that Mikel Arteta uh, has planted an olive tree 
outside the grounds uh, of his office uh, because he says that it's not just a reflection of his ideal football culture, but also it's a metaphor for Arsenal Football Club in that while the fruit and the leaves are the showpiece of the tree, the top players, if you like, uh, they are no more vital to it flourishing than the branches that hold them and the roots beneath it. So it's really, really interesting that, you know, Mikel Arteta thinks this way, according to Guillaume Balaguer, is that holistic in his approach? I think when you're trying to build a strong culture, when you're trying to build a strong environment, you do need to be a little bit batshit crazy. Like you do need to be a little bit obsessed um, in order to really sort of live and breathe those values and then hopefully be able to put them across um, you know, to um, to your team, to your players. Um, and then he goes on to say that without the roots, the top of the tree would wither and die, which is, which is absolutely right. And Mikel Arteta has worked hard uh, to, of course, um, you know, make sure that those roots and, and foundations are there uh, throughout his time here. That's been what he's been striving for. Um, he talks about the run of three defeats against Palace, Brighton and Southampton and that Mikel Arteta had held a meeting after that game, a team meeting in which he showed them the olive tree and talked around the olive tree and his philosophy that is built around the idea uh, of an olive tree, which was, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that you think is a bit left field and it's a bit out there, but it seems to have worked. And, and Guillaume Balaguer goes on to say, might well be a coincidence, but Arsenal have won four straight games since that meeting and are well aware uh, that a win against Tottenham will put them in the driving seat. Now, he also goes on to talk a little bit about the end of Mikel Arteta's uh, playing career, in which he says the injuries that he made, quite uh, that he got, sorry, kind of made him think long and hard about his profession, and that he'd spend, you know, at some points, twelve hours a day attached to scanners, chatting to doctors, and being treated by physios, um, and that he realised that the battle he was fighting to recover and be available again, you know, and, and be able to perform at the level that he had done in the years prior, was a battle that he was always going to lose. Um, he talks about the fact that his career, which I think we probably would have gathered, has been shaped managerially by the likes of David Moyes, Arsene Wenger and Pep Guardiola. Um, and he talks about the fact that Mikel Arteta was somebody that you know really challenged Pep Guardiola in terms of asking him a lot of questions, always wanting to learn, um, always wanting to, you know, to know uh, why things were being done, what the reasons were for them and how he could potentially... Um, you know, implement those things with a view to potentially implementing those things in his own management style. Um, but Guillaume Balaguer talks about the fact that the experience that he gained from working with Pep Guardiola was priceless, not just because it helped him refine his own thinking process, but it helped him kind of tidy up and tweak his own philosophy. Um, and he talks about the fact that when he got to that final year of his time at Manchester City, he knew uh, that he was ready for a big job. Um, Guillaume Balaguer talks about the importance of Mikel Arteta having been an assistant. Now, I know that a lot of people sit there and criticise him for that reason. And they say, oh, he's a co-man and he was Pep's lap boy and he was Pep's this and he was Pep's that. Actually, what Guillaume Balaguer is telling us in this piece, and again, look, I'm not reading through the entire piece. I'm just picking out the bits that really resonated with me. He says that even though, um, you know, he's been an assistant and people sort of turn their noses up at that, Actually, what that's done is it's given him the uh, the ability to understand and to realise um, how important it is to have the right people and the right coaching staff around him. And obviously, he brought with him to the club, Steve Round, um, who had spent some time at Everton, United, Derby and Villa. Albert Stoivenberg as well. Airpod Albert, as he's known, uh, was a former coach at the Belgian club Genk and former assistant manager at Manchester United and Wales. And Guillaume says that he chose them, not because they've got the most glamorous CVs, because clearly they don't in comparison to some of the others out there, but he chose them because he trusted, he trusted in them to write the ask. Ugh, mincing my words. He trusted in them to ask the right questions and to have the same standards, same level of integrity and the necessary understanding of leadership tactics and game plans that could help Arsenal at this level. Um, you know, so he's he's gone and put people in that are good, that are experienced, that have lots to offer, that can challenge him, that can ask the right questions, but also see the same vision because that has to be 
something that they have in common, right? In order to move forward and work well with someone, there needs to be that synergy between you, even if you don't agree on every individual point. Now, Guillaume Balaguet talks about the fact that working with Arteta on a daily basis is certainly not going to be easy because he expects everybody else in and around him to act with the same passion and to act with the same uh, sort of, you know, energy that he does. And that's not always easy. Um, he describes him as a non-stop, perpetually driven ball of energy, but also a man of compassion, a caring person with a natural sense of justice and somebody whose main aim is to seek happiness and harmony in the dressing room. And again, it goes back to that olive tree analogy, right? If the roots, i.e. the dressing room, are not right, then it doesn't matter how pretty the flowers are on the top because they're not going to grow, they're not going to flourish. So when you read this and you, you kind of take this all in, it does always kind of relate back to that philosophy that Mikel Arteta appears to live and breathe by, which Guillaume Balaguet sets out at the start of this piece. Um, he does say that once he makes his mind up about the way he wants to go, he's, and I quote, unmovable. The pressure on all fronts for him to make peace with Ozil was as pointless as it was remorseless. Once he decided the German was surplus to requirements, a football decision based on his performance and attitude and his judgment was backed by the board and the German stay at the club was over. And it also references Shkodran Mustafi, Serge Kalasinac and Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, the fact that they were not able to contribute or were willing, I don't know, to contribute to Mikel Arteta's dynamic. Uh, the dynamic that he wanted to create was was basically the writing on the wall for those players. Um, there's a little bit about when he first took the job, how he set about making a first impression. And uh, in the piece, uh, he talks about the fact that he, you know, he repeatedly said, you know, I'm, I'm lucky and I'm privileged to be at this football club. So this is not a guy coming in with arrogance. You know, a lot of people point to that with Mikel Arteta, myself included. In the past, I've looked at certain things and listened to certain press conferences and certain interviews and thought, there's an element of arrogance about this. And I'm not really sure that you've earned the right to give that arrogance. I mean, you, I think Jurgen Klopp is a little bit arrogant nowadays. I think that Pep Guardiola can be a little bit arrogant, but they have earned the right to do that based on what they've already achieved in the game. And when I used to kind of get that vibe from Mikel Arteta, I used to think, well, where is this coming from? I mean, where does this stem from? You haven't earned the right yet. Um, so it, it's it's actually refreshing to hear that when he did come into the club, that wasn't the vibe or the persona that he was putting across. Um, he said that, Mikel Arteta said that whilst he was um, very grateful and, and made that clear to the players and the staff and everybody involved at the club, uh, that, you know, they were still going to have to work hard. They were still going to have to suffer and they should enjoy the hard work that lay ahead. He says that one of Wenger's obsessions was loyalty to all of those around him, which in the end made it difficult for him to implement much needed changes. Also, everything went through him. And in a modern club, that is no longer an efficient way to run things. He says Arteta is much more ruthless than Wenger, especially when working out what somebody can bring to the club. He will not hesitate to grasp the nettle when it comes to making career-defining decisions regarding players. Wenger's loyalty frequently clouded his judgment and the unwillingness of those close to him to change or adapt helped create the malaise that affected the club by the end of his departure. Uh, by the end of, yeah, by the time of his departure, I beg your pardon. So what I'm trying to say here is that Mikel Arteta, from being an assistant, and, and I'll go back to that point I made a few moments ago, understands that he can't do everything in a way that Arsene Wenger never did. You know, I love Arsene Wenger. I adore him. For me, he's the greatest ever. And it's going to take one hell of a manager to come in and knock him off of that perch. He, for me, is Arsenal's greatest football manager. He's one of the all-time greats of the game because of not just what he achieved, but the way he achieved it, the way he came in and transformed English football. But towards the end, when football evolved, when football developed, when the details became more and more important, i.e., you know, your ability to defend from uh, set pieces. And your ability to attack um, from set pieces. I beg your pardon. I think the audio just cut out there for a split second. But what I'm trying to say is that in Mikel Arteta, we've got someone who isn't, 
you know, can come across as stubborn and clearly has his own mind and clearly has his own thoughts and clearly has his own ways, but isn't isn't adverse to the idea of giving somebody else a little bit of control if he feels that that person can add value. And Nicholas Yova, the set-piece coach at Arsenal this season, is a prime example of that. Now, there's still a couple of games to go, but overall, it's undeniable that Arsenal have improved from set-pieces. And if you listen to... Um, if you listen to the Peter Crouch podcast that dropped recently with Aaron Ramsdale on it, he talks about how big Arsenal are on those details now. The fact that they want to defend set pieces effectively, etc., etc. So I think that having a manager who is very strong-minded, has a very clear vision, knows what he needs to do, knows what, what the path is to getting there and to achieving that is obviously key. But also having that humility at times to go, well, I don't know everything about everything. And there are people out there who are better equipped and better qualified to help me in that department. Therefore, I'm going to lean on them. That is the perfect balance. It doesn't mean that Mikel Arteta is the perfect manager before people start getting carried away. It, it just means that I, when you read all these things and you hear all these things, you do start to feel a lot more confident in the methodology, at least. And that's all you can ask for at this point. Also talks about... Um, you know, the, the comparison with Unai Emery a little bit. And this is interesting because Guillaume Balague is a Spanish football expert and will have a far uh, deeper knowledge of Unai Emery, him as a person, his qualities, his flaws perhaps, than, than we will. Um, but he says, under Arteta, there are new methods in place. Uh, there's an effort to create a new energy. He says, Emery helped by instilling a competitiveness at all levels. And that's right. Because, of course, he took us to the Europa League final. We did narrowly miss out on the top four in his first season. But he says Arteta, who's considered, and this is an important part, more empathetic by the people who have known both regimes, has taken that to another level. And you can see that in that people like Granit Xhaka have been reborn under Mikel Arteta. You know, players like Mohamed Elneny, who were on the peripheries for a number of seasons, have come back in and, and have done a decent job when called upon. People like Rob Holding, who for years we'd have been saying wasn't good enough, has been able to come into the side and help us when we need him to. Um, you know, and, and that is part of the manager being um, considered empathetic and part of that relationship and that bond that he manages to maintain with those people. And others will say he's a bad manager. And others will say... I beg your pardon. Others will say he's a bad man manager. Others will say that he doesn't know how to manage the relationships with his players. I would say that this piece completely contradicts that theory. Let's scroll down a little bit further because there's a little bit more left of this. Um, he says that gradually, Guillaume Balaguer, that is, the message is coming across and the culture is being transformed. The players now find themselves constantly challenged. There's competitiveness rather than a comfort blanket of mediocrity. He's introduced maths and mind games, competitions among players. And above all, he and his staff spend a lot of their time taking notice of who leads discussions, who are the most proactive and who consistently fail to join in. He realises the devil is always in the minor details. It's for that reason he loves the contribution now being made by Martin Odegaard. Intelligent, intuitive, empathetic, always willing to put the team first and constantly looking to improve us. Now, this relationship, this dynamic he seems to have with Martin Odegaard is really, really interesting. And it's why a lot of people believe that next season, the Norwegian will be named the club captain. He seems to be the, the chosen lieutenant out on the pitch for, um, for Mikel Arteta. He seems to be the guy that he passes a lot of instructions to. There's, you know, countless times during a game where you'll see whenever there's a pause, whenever there's a, a brief delay, it will be Martin Odegaard that goes over first to Mikel Arteta um, and they talk. According to Aaron Ramsdale, they talk in Spanish as well, which is quite interesting because Martin Odegaard's English is perfect. Like we've all heard him in interviews. It's fantastic. So I find that interesting. That dynamic is interesting that they, they have that, which... I don't know. Like, I, I don't really know what that does for the dressing room because, like, I always think, like, and I, I don't know, maybe this is me. So, like, for example, I speak Greek, right? And I've got friends that are not Greek. And so when I am around them 
and my friends that are Greek, I feel like if I start talking in my language, even if what I want to say makes more sense in Greek or whatever, I'm reluctant to do it because I don't want people to feel left out. Like I don't want to give that vibe across of like, maybe we're talking about you. Maybe there's a reason we're talking in Greek. Maybe it's because we don't want you to hear what we're saying when actually that's not the case, but I'm always mindful of giving that impression. And it's interesting then that Mikel Arteta actually doesn't give a shit about that. He talks to Nicolas Pepe in French. He talks to Martin Odegaard in Spanish. He talks to Ben White in English. Like it, I find it fascinating that, he does that. But I also think the flip side of something like that is that it shows that he's making an extra effort. It shows that he's gone out of his way to step outside, more so when he does it in French, because that's not his first language. For him to speak in French to French-speaking players and help them settle in, for example, when they first come to the club, I think must be so, um, you know, it must be so like, warming like you must think like if if I were Nicolas Pepe and I was struggling for confidence and I know that Mikel speaks English and Spanish and all these other languages in the dressing room and he comes and sits down with me and starts coming out with with French that would to me make me feel like this guy understands me and and it does show that empathetic side that you know that that is referred to in this piece now he could quite easily be like, well, screw it. I'm going to speak the language that suits me best. Or we're in England and we're going to speak English and that's done. In the way that I believe a lot of other managers do. Now, partly that would be because perhaps they don't have the ability to switch just like that in the way that Mikel does. But I just think that does really highlight the point um, around the uh, the empathy side of Mikel Arteta. Uh, it also goes on to say that he um, makes a point of getting close to their families um, and, and it references a story and it doesn't say who this was about, uh, but it references a story where a key member of staff was considering another job offer and that Arteta made it his business to contact this member of staff's wife directly. I'm not sure I'd be uh, all on board with that and ask her what she needed to make uh, sure that both her and her husband were happy at the club. And Guillaume Balaguer goes on to say that it's that attention to detail that marks much of the difference in this new regime. Talks about him being very inspirational in his team talks. Um, and he talks about him using examples such as, um, you know, examples of tragic events such as Diego Maradona's death, Ukraine and the return of fans following their absence during the pandemic, um, you know, as some of the issues and topics that he can use or utilise in a way to extract the emotion that he needs from the players. He does go on to say, and this is part of that kind of stubbornness that I was talking about earlier on, that he's not the quickest to admit when he's made a mistake, although he invariably knows when he's done so. He's also not averse to taking risks if he feels that it's the right thing to do, even against the judgment sometimes of those close to him. That means sometimes he probably feels a bit isolated with his mind constantly looking forward and always a step ahead. Now, this bit is interesting to me because... I think it takes a big person to accept that they've made a mistake. But I think it takes an even bigger person to publicly say or to even speak out on the fact that they believe a mistake. I mean, I can say it many, many times in my life. I've made a mistake, known it was a mistake, but my pride doesn't allow me to admit it was a mistake. And I will argue and argue and argue and argue until the cows come home, even when I know that I'm wrong. And so I know that it takes an a bigger person than the next level of person to be able to say to whoever it might be, even if it's to your partner, even if it's to your, whoever, it takes a bigger person to be able to, to, to actually admit it. So the first step is going, yeah, I got this wrong in your own head. But the next step, which is a bigger step and a harder step for a lot of people is to come out and say that. So I don't expect that all the time from Mikel Arteta. And I don't think that, I don't think that he's always got to, you know, be so upfront and forthright about those things. But it gives you comfort knowing that he, at the very least, will know that he's got something wrong. Look, before we continue uh, through this piece, which is a fascinating piece, I have to say, I hope you guys have enjoyed the discussion around it. I really, really do, because um, it, it really did fascinate me. I just want to take a very, very brief pause um, to bring you guys' attention to our good partners over at 
Football Prizes. Now, the people over at Football Prizes have got another Arsenal prize up for grabs as we speak. Let me just share it on the screen so that I can show you guys what you could potentially win this time around. Don't worry, we're going back to the Guillaume Balaguer piece in just a minute. But up for grabs from Football Prizes is a 2021-22 squad signed Arsenal shirt, plus the opportunity to win 11 instant win prizes. They include uh, an Emmanuel Petit signed and custom framed football boot, an Arsenal 1971 squad signed and framed montage, an Arsenal home shirt, the Football Prizes vouchers, and some credit for the website. Uh, tickets are £3.95, and this competition ends on Monday, the 16th of May. Uh, we'll just check how it's doing in terms of ticket sales. Of the 199 available, 98 have already been sold. So we're about halfway there. There are four days, six hours, 28 minutes left at the time of recording, but they will sell out fast. So if you are interested, click on the link in the description and get involved. Okay, uh, let's go back to Guillaume Balaguer's piece, a fascinating insight into Mikel Arteta. Honestly, I know I'm kind of talking through it and taking you through sort of the best bits, but I would advise, encourage you that if you do get the time to go over to the BBC uh, football website and um, and uh, and really have a read of it for yourself. Because sometimes, I don't know about you guys, when I actually read something for myself as opposed to hear about it, it, it sinks in with me it kind of seeps through the gaps and I make sure that it gets into my mind. So yeah, do check it out. Um, look, just a quick reminder as well, though, before we do push on, if you could please hit that like button, it'd be very, uh, very much appreciated. Look, there's over 450 of you watching us live right now across the multiple platforms, but we've only got 92 likes on the board. If we can get that to 200 by the time this stream ends, I'll be buzzing. Uh, so please do. And uh, hit the like button if you hate Tottenham. Simple. There you go. Uh, Rich says, great content today, Harry. Thank you so much, mate. Really, really appreciate um, your support and you tuning in. Okay, look, let's get back to this piece then. Let's talk a little bit about Mikel Arteta's relationship with the board and how Guillaume Balaguer sees it. Well, he says that he's got a very good relationship with Stan and he references the fact that it's with Josh whom he has the most interaction. Um, his message to them has always been that the most important thing at the club is structure. And whilst he continually tries to get the best footballers to the club, um, equally, it's important to him um, that, you know, the, the structure is there. He says, sometimes it means there are difficult conversations. He has had meetings with the owners where pen in his hand, he's defined what his vision for the club is in the short, medium and long term. Um, and things like this would suggest that he, and I quote, carries the club on his shoulders. Um, and Guillaume Balaguer did a brilliant video, didn't he, with um, with um, uh, Guillaume Balaguer. I don't know why I've lost that in my mind, considering I'm reading for his piece. But he'd done a brilliant video in which he made that comment, Guillaume Balaguer. He didn't give away everything that was in this article, but he did say that, you know, he he carries the club on his shoulders. He's the type of guy that will carry the club on his shoulders. And this kind of backs that up. And again, look, I'm not in agreement with the idea of one man making all the decisions. I don't think that's a healthy environment. But you'd rather a football man had a big influence than a businessman, right? Because it is a football club and we want to see success on the pitch. That to us is what is first and foremost in terms of our, um, you know, in terms of our, our concerns and what we want to see. Let's um, let's move uh, further down. He talks a little bit about the relationship he has with Edu um, and that they're so close that people assume that they've known each other for years when the reality is the two men's paths never crossed in their Arsenal playing days and they only met for the first time shortly before the interview stage for the manager's job. Um, he talks about the first time that they ever spoke on the phone and that it was a, a good hour conversation talking about everything other than football and you could see that the connection uh, between the two uh, was palpable from the outset and has gone from strength to strength in some dark moments. He says that Edu um, had come back to a club that was completely different to the one that he left as a player in 2005. And so he needed persuading in trying to create the new culture uh, and following the plan that Arteta had set out. He says that in Arteta, he saw a well-prepared coach with a style and clear ideology to take the club forward and a man who wanted the same as he did. He also says Edu knew it would take a while and Arteta knows it's still a work in progress, but the build needs to be happening day in, day out. 
interesting to see that again, going back to the point I made earlier, that although he can be described as a little bit stubborn and he can be described as someone who's very strong minded and has his views and it's his way or the highway. Again, interesting to read that he's not averse to taking advice from those in power at the club and even from those around him. But fundamentally, he's still his own man who knows his own mind and he's definitely not one who's going to be turning easily. He is aware that the buck stops with him. And when naturally, when you know that you're responsible for something, you will take more ownership and you will be more reluctant to take in on advice from other people. You will take it on board. But I mean, what, what I'm trying to say is you're not going to be completely influenced by someone else. Now, they can influence you to a degree and they can give you something that makes you think and could potentially lead to you changing an approach on something. But if you are your own man, and if you know that ultimately the buck stops with you, you're still going to go with your instinct a lot of the time. You would hope that the advice from others can help you temper that instinct and can help you find logical and more rational solutions. But you still ultimately have your goal, your vision, your view, and you want to carry that out as best as possible. In terms of how involved he is uh, on the training pitch, it does say that Arteta can be found on the training pitch every day. But he also delegates his to his extensive coaching staff when work is needed in specific areas. Now, again, backs up the point. I'm Mikel Arteta. I'm going to come on the pitch and I'm going to coach you guys how to play the style of football that I want and how to implement the values that are important to me. But when it comes to set pieces, when it comes to fitness and conditioning, when it comes to whatever it is that you want to highlight as a specific area, the very reason I brought these people in alongside me was because they are experts in that field and can offer you more than I can. Therefore, let them take that bit on. And we've seen the benefits of that over the course of the season in a number of areas. He talks about how the fact that we we got beaten um, by Crystal Palace and then that defeat at Brighton, it really shocked Mikel Arteta. Um, but that his way of dealing with it and his reaction was to tell the players that he was going to go home and take a long, hard look at himself and then try to work out what the mistakes were. Now, this is a really clever move because I think when you're somebody who's quite empathetic and you're somebody who's reliant on the relationships that you have worked incredibly hard to build behind the scenes, you have to know how to manage these types of situations. Take Frank Lampard, for example. Okay, Frank Lampard would have come out in the press and told everybody that his players let him down and, and, and it's not acceptable and et cetera, et cetera, in the way that he has done on numerous occasions since taking over at Everton. Mikel Arteta's decision to, to not hammer the players and to say, I'm going to go home and I'm going to take a long, hard look at myself for me, reinforces the culture that he's been trying to implement all along. And if he has built those relationships well, and they do have a strong foundation, strong roots like the olive tree, then by doing that, you are prompting those players to think for themselves and to go away and consider what they could have done better without having to force it on them. And the most powerful way of getting through to someone is when you can make them realise something as opposed to shoving it down their throat. I, I've always believed that. I think that if I want you to, to learn a lesson in life, and, and I think this with my kid sometimes, like he's only three years old and, and we're not in a place where I have to teach him harsh life lessons. But, you know, like, for example, I tell him don't run in a certain area of the garden because there's paving stones and you're going to trip up and hurt yourself. And I'm not saying that I want him to trip up and hurt himself, but there does come a point where you go, go on then, do it. And that that realisation when it does happen and he grazes his knee that, um, oh my God, I'm going to get arrested here for, for mistreating my kid. No, that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that realisation that comes from him actually doing the opposite to what I said and falling over, grazing his knee, and then the pain that comes from that and you know, the, the realisation of, of the fact that I was right is more powerful than me sitting at the other end of the garden and saying, don't run there, don't run there, don't run there. Sometimes you have to make somebody realise something for it to really take effect, as opposed to you constantly giving them lip service and saying it over and over and over again. 
And I think that's really important. And I think Mikel Arteta's approach after those games suggests that he believes that too, that he thinks that by taking the responsibility himself, because he's shown empathy to the players in a number of other ways, naturally, when they hear that from him, it will prompt them to go away and think about it themselves. I think that's really, really important. I think that's really key. Um, also talks a little bit about what we spoke about earlier on, that the, um, you know, the um, the fact that he's tried desperately to keep everybody engaged um, is something that he deserves a lot of credit for. And, and we're seeing the benefits of that now at this part of the season where we've got some key players missing. And um, what's he like away from the pitch and the training ground? According to Guillaume Balaga, he's not renowned for being a joker. I think we could have guessed this. Um, and his way of thanking people and getting closer to them is to spend time with them. He's not totally divorced from the British sense of humour, but prefers to build relationships at events like barbecues and other informal gatherings. He frequently invites his friends and colleagues to his house uh, to break bread and display his culinary skills. Uh, he says that many clubs take their teams to places like Dubai during the international breaks, like Arsenal did, but not all of them do what Arsenal did recently, which was take all the families of the players with them. He says it was a chance for the manager to show his more relaxed side, surrounded by his nearest and dearest. He said that if there's a bereavement at the club, he'll always send flowers. He always celebrates Christmas, which includes giving away huge Iberico ham legs from his Spanish home of San Sebastian, of which he's very proud. So Mikel Arteta tries to build that bond and that connection by doing other things, um, such as events, such as you know gifting people on Christmas and, and all of that stuff. Um, and then the, the kind of final bit is, um, and this is, you know what, I'll just read through this because I think this bit is is really key as well. And it sums up all that's been said really, really nicely. He says that, you know, his family is his rock, especially his best friend and wife, Lorena Bernal, who has temporarily parked her career as a model and actress to help her husband settle in his new role. Um, says that he's a frequent visitor to Edu's home and that the Brazilian has become someone that he can turn to during the most difficult and trying times as at the beginning of the season or during their bad run in early April. He's also somebody who can pat him on the back when things are going well and tell him to relax and reassure him that the overall thing, the overall project is moving in the right direction. Um, it says fundamentally everyone at the club, including Edu, recognizes how good a coach he is and how potentially great he could become. He obviously can't do it on his own and that's and that we're clearly not where he wants us to be. Um, he realizes his own limitations and knows perhaps he needs to address such things as this is interesting behavior on the touchline or an excess of meetings and the length of them but much of it is caused by the fact he's so intense so involved and with time a more balanced approach will appear arsenal have obviously shown their faith in him by giving him that contract extension that will see him uh, remain at the club at least until the end of the 24 25 season but before then there is still a long way to go um you know he's still three or four players away according to Guillaume Balague, from having a squad that he can call his own. Um, but the fear, of course, is that the intensity that is his calling card will lead to an eventual burnout. We're a million miles away from that. And for the time being, he has the passion, energy and dedication to ensure he takes this Arsenal side back to where their supporters feel they belong. That's a really great piece from Guillaume Balaguer. We spent a lot of time on it, but it was worth it, I think. Um, let me know. Did you enjoy uh, that rundown? I thought it was a fantastic piece and I really wanted to share it. Uh, with you guys and, and break it down whilst kind of giving my thoughts along the way. But let me know if you enjoyed that. And we'll do some more similar deep dives into bits and pieces because we call this the pressure review. And I think people and myself, naturally, the first thought that you go to is, well, let's talk about the transfer rumours. Let's talk about what's being printed, what's being written about Arsenal today uh, with regards to who they might sign or who they might sell and any controversial stories that are sort of linked to the club. And actually, sometimes it's quite nice, isn't it, to go down something else press-related like this and break it down um, in a lot of detail. Um, OK, let's, um, let's, uh, let's take some of your questions for the last sort of five, ten minutes of the show. Let me just quickly check in where we are in terms of likes at the moment. There's over 500 of you with us right now. So there's no reason why we can't get up to 200 likes at minimum. We're on 146 at the moment. So let's try and uh, drive that up. Um, lots of uh, <laughs> lots of nice comments about the content today, which is great. Thank you all so much. Honestly, really, really appreciate it. Henry, did you say you were going to be at the game tonight? If you are, come over and say hello if you spot me. I don't know where I'm sitting yet. 
um, exactly. But I'll let you know when I get to the game. So um, well, I'm sure you'll see me anyway. And if anybody else sees me, because a lot of the time I get messages like, I think I saw you here. I think come and say hello, because I don't know your faces. So it's difficult for me. Like it's not me being rude or not wanting to come and say hello. Just come over and introduce yourselves and we'll have a chat for sure. Uh, Jid says, um, how come this has lasted longer than most of your other shows with more Q&As? Because, because this is a really in-depth and long piece and it, it takes time to go through it thoroughly with a fine tooth comb. And, and that's why, I guess. Um, and it's been a lovely distraction from the North London Derby as well. Uh, Schrodinger says, do you think, going a little bit off topic, but that's fine. This is the Q&A section. Chuck in the chat what you wish. Um, do you think Balogun is ready to be in the squad next season? I don't know, is the honest answer to that. I mean, I haven't watched enough of him at Middlesbrough to to know if I think he's ready or not, or to have a real strong opinion on how much he's progressed. I didn't think he was ready prior to that loan move. And I don't know if the Middlesbrough loan style has been enough to, um, to convince those at the football club that he is ready. So it's going to be interesting to see how that situation is dealt with in the summer. But Put it this way, if you're asking me now, would I rely on Balogun over a run of games in the Premier League? My answer is no. And, um, you know, I'm just about OK with or have been OK with Nketiah doing it. And he's proven a lot of us wrong, um, you know. But again, there's still question marks over whether that is sustainable or not, whether he'd be able to do that for a long period of time. So I'm, I'm not sure that he, he's ready to, to play a major part. And therefore, I can't say with any confidence that he's ready to be in the squad. Uh, Omar says prediction for tonight. I'm going to go with a 1-1 draw. Um, that's what I'm going to go with, I think. Um, Lynn says, listening to this, you can tell Mikel is an Arsenal man and wants his squad and coaches to succeed. Absolutely. Uh, P-A-double-P says, great show, Harry. Thank you. Um, this is something different. Appreciate it. Matt says, what do we think of Tottenham? I'll let you guys answer that in the chat. Um Christian says, considering tonight's game, besides who will be playing in the formation, what do you think will be will our strategy be and tactics? So how do I think we'll approach the game? It's hard, isn't it? Um, I was speaking on TalkSport yesterday about this game and, and one of the things that I kind of... There's a little clip actually on the channel. It's the last video that I put out if you want to check it out. Uh, audio listeners, you won't find it on audio. You have to go over to the YouTube channel. But one of the things that I sort of touched on was that I do... I do fear um, the fact that, how do I put this? I do fear the fact that we could potentially get caught in two minds tonight. That's a big worry for me. It's a big concern for me. The, the idea of sort of going out there, not really knowing whether you should push forward or whether you should be more defensive. Um, and, and I think that that lack of clarity and that lack of conviction in your thinking can be dangerous. So I'd probably prefer that we made a decision one way or the other, either be our usual aggressive selves and go for it, which I don't really think is the right approach personally. But I'd rather if we did have that approach that we tried to execute one of them 10 out of 10, then sort of got caught in that difficult headspace where you don't really know if you should be pushing on and then so you don't do it with enough intensity and with enough intention and with enough conviction. And then the flip side of that is, but then on the other side, you you don't know whether you should be defensive or if you're being too defensive. And it, it can all just become a bit of a mess. It's like, you know, when people say going into a game, knowing that you need to win is easier than going into a game where a point will do because your mindset is clearer. I think that in this instance tonight, our mindset around the way we're going to approach the game has to be clear. I don't expect Mikel Arteta to, you know, publicly say that he's going to set us up to go there and be a little bit more defensive um, and, and a little bit more pragmatic. But I do think that that will probably be the message within the changing room. Uh, Rob Segal says, bloody hell, nervous or what? Be leaving home and getting down to the slum at around 5.30. I will see you down there, um, my friend. And um, yeah, hopefully we're all celebrating uh, a nice victory. Uh, big thank you to... Uh, our good friend Harris in Cyprus. Hope you're well, mate. Uh, he says, great show. Keep it up. Thank you all so much. Look, I'm going to leave it there. Um, I know there are a few questions. I promise we'll pick up questions over the next couple of days. We're going to have some content coming when I get back from Tottenham tonight. I'm going to try and bring you guys a video from 
inside the stadium, just a short two, three minute clip like we normally do. Um, but it depends on the circumstances. Listen, Tottenham away is a, is a dodgy game and you don't want to be coming out of the stadium sort of filming stuff or, or be caught doing any of that because of, you know, the fact that it's a, it's a bit of a dodgy place to go. So what I will, as an Arsenal fan anyway, so what I will do is I'll try and get something out. If I don't, then I will do you guys a live show, a live episode when I get home, whatever time it is, even if it's midnight, uh, we'll do it. So yeah, content coming later. There'll be content following up uh, tomorrow as well. And then of course, uh, on Saturday, we'll start looking ahead to the game against Newcastle, which comes up on Monday night. Thank you all so, so much uh, for your support. Thank you for tuning in. Make sure you smash the like button. If you haven't done so already, we're still about 30 likes away from hitting that goal of 200. Subscribe to the channel if you are brand new as we continue to push forward on that front. And if you're listening via the audio platforms, please do leave us a review. I'll be back very, very soon with more. Until next time, goodbye. And come on, you gunners. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon.